0: Hello Evil Inside listeners, I'm Daze and you are tuning in to Evil Inside Podcast. I would first like to thank all those who have either subscribed or followed any of my social media for Evil Inside podcast, such as Twitter, Instagram, the YouTube channel, and or your podcast platform. Thank you very much for being here and I hope you really enjoy this episode. Today's episode takes place in a small town called Circleville. The town is located about 25 miles south of Columbus, Ohio. In the 2010 census, it documented that Circleville had a population of approximately 13,314. The following events all started in December of 1976. A series of letters were sent to several people within Circleville with threats. However, no real follow through ever happened to them, except for the unexplained events that Mary and Ron Gillespie encountered and experienced. Mary and Ron had been married and had kids. The letters that were sent to Mary Gillespie had nothing but hate and vulgarity within them These letters were sent by the post office and they were all postmarked with Columbus. None of these letters ever had a return address and they were all written in the form of block letters. This made it especially difficult to determine who was behind writing the letters. These letters gave hints to insinuate that they were being watched and that they knew the family's dynamics. It also mentioned that the letter was not a prank and it should be taken very seriously. Mary was a bus driver for a local school district in Circleville. About two weeks after the time of the first letter, Mary received another. This time, the letter she received alleged that she was having an affair with the Superintendent Gordon Massey and that it needed to stop. She and Mr. Massey, of course, denied any allegations that they were involved in any affair. She and the superintendent decided to ignore the letters in the hope that it would be the end of it. Eventually, a letter was sent to her husband, Ron, stating that she needed to stop the affair with the superintendent or die. When her husband asked her about these allegations, she denied them. But the rumor soon started to follow in their town. Eventually another letter came in the mail and it had this statement. Gillespie, you have had two weeks and done nothing. Admit the truth and inform the board. If not, I will broadcast it on CBS, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. Mary, Ron, Karen, who was Ron's sister, and Paul Frischauer, who was Karen's husband, and Paul's sister, all got together to try to figure out who could be sending these letters. They all came up with the idea of the possibility that it could have been the superintendent's son that was sending these letters. They thought this because on a few of the letters, they were signed with just the letter W. Being that the superintendent's son's name was William, kind of made sense to them. They thought maybe he had suspicions of the affair and he began writing the letters to stop the affair. They all came up with the idea that Paul should write William, telling him that they were on to him and that he had needed to stop. Paul ended up writing a few letters. Another person that they reportedly thought of was one of Mary's co-workers. He had apparently come on to her at some time and he got upset when she refused his offers. Paul wrote him as well. The letters stopped. A few weeks later, more letters came. On August 19th, 1977, Ron, Mary's husband, received a phone call. When Ron answered the phone call, he immediately left the house with his gun in a hurry. It is unknown what was said or what he heard on the other side of the receiver. He had only gotten down the road from his home when he apparently went off the road, hit a tree, and died from the impact. There had been no reports of gunshots in the area or disturbances. When Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe got on scene, his initial thought was that the incident was due to foul play. But for some unknown reason, he abruptly changed his mind and ruled it an accident. There was speculation in the town, however, that Sheriff Radcliffe was part of a cover up. One interesting fact was that the police had sent the gun to forensics to be examined. The gun had apparently been fired once, but there were no shell casings or holes where the truck was in or around the truck. Coincidentally, the truck was sent to be disposed of only a couple of days after the incident. During Ron's autopsy, his alcohol levels were taken, and it was found that his alcohol level was .16, which was said to have been 1.5 to two times the legal limit. Many of his family had verified that when Ron left that the house that morning, he was not drunk. What makes it interesting is that the fact that Ron had been said to be teetotal. Teetotal is by definition choosing abstinence from any alcohol. In other research, there were statements that he hardly drank. So it is unclear if he drank just a little or if he was completely refraining from drinking at all. But that night, his family stated that he was not drunk. Ron was only 35 years old at the time of his death. After all this, the litter still continued to be received. They began to threaten Mary's daughter as well as Mary's job and Massey's position as superintendent. Six years later, Gordon Massey was already divorced, and the letters continued to threaten them. Mary and Massey eventually came clean. They did admit to the affair, but they also stated that the affair all started after the letters began and after ron's death in february 1983 mary was driving her bus down a road and she ended up seeing a sign on her route that insinuated some type of message that threatened her daughter so she stopped she got off the bus And she ended up taking down the sign, but there was a string attached to the sign. As she followed the string, it led to a box. She picked up the box and took it back into the bus with her. It is unknown whether she had students with her in the bus or if she did not. She sat down and opened the box. Luckily for her, The trap failed because when she opened the box, there was a pistol. It was rigged to harm whoever opened the box. Mary, however, did not take the box or the gun to the police immediately. Instead, she took it home. After a few hours, she then took it to the police. It ended up that the gun's serial number had been filed down But somehow, the police were able to link that particular gun's serial number to Mary's brother-in-law, Paul. When questioned, Paul stated that the gun was missing from a long time ago. Oddly, at the time of the box being found, Paul had already been divorced from Ron's sister, Karen. She apparently had been cheating on Paul, and he had gotten full custody of the kids, Karen had moved into a trailer that was located behind Mary's property. This is where Karen had shared her suspicions with Mary that she had thought all along that it might be Paul who was behind it all. Mary went to the police with these suspicions which led to the questioning of Paul. During questioning the police had Paul do some handwriting tests and was then arrested for attempted murder. There are many allegations that the type of methods that the police used to test the handwriting were not legitimate ways for it to be verified. So Paul, Mary's brother-in-law, went to trial in October of 1983, regardless of the fact that he had had an alibi that day. The only evidence that they had had was the letter testing and the pistol that had been registered to him. Paul was eventually sentenced to 25 years with the minimum of seven years to serve for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie, not the murder of Ron Gillespie. During his incarceration, Paul continued to maintain his innocence. Paul ended up serving 10 years in prison. He was released in May of 1994. During the incarceration, it was very odd that letters continued to be received to the people of Circleville during the time that he was in jail. When looked at the letters, they noticed as well that the postmark was from Columbus. However, the jail was not located in Columbus. Paul also received letters. One of the letters he received stated, shame how things work out. Better you than me. The sheriff says you did it, but we know better, don't we? The warden had even tried to help out Paul by stating that there was no way he could have sent those letters since all his mail was looked at, whether going in or out, as well as he was not supplied with any type of writing material, and he, at some times, was in solitary confinement. Six months after Paul's release, Unsolved Mysteries did a segment, and after it aired, a few days later, Unsolved Mysteries got a letter themselves. The letter stated, forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you El sickles will pay, the Circleville writer. There was also a journalist by the name of Martin Yant who had done some investigating on the Circleville letter mystery. He had come across some possible evidence that never made it to trial or anywhere else. He had found that there was another driver going past Mary's bus route that day and had passed by just a bit before Mary's arrival. As she passed by, she had seen a yellow El Camino that was parked in that area. She reported a large man with sandy hair who was standing and acting like he was urinating on the side of the road at the time. Coincidentally, Paul's ex-wife Karen had had a boyfriend that happened to have a yellow El Camino according to a family member. After Paul's release, he continued to maintain that he was innocent and denied all allegations of any wrongdoing. Paul Frischauer died in 2012 at the age of 70. Mysteriously enough, all the letters stopped in 1994 when paul was released from prison there were suspicions of the prosecutor in paul's case mary's co-worker and the pickaway county coroner that were part of the cover-up suspicions oddly enough many of the suspicions towards these people were either true or have very interesting circumstances in their past that make it questionable whether a cover-up truly was happening in Circleville. The Circleville Letters were featured in a segment on Unsolved Mysteries, which originally aired on November 11, 1994. Circleville Letters has also been written about in many websites such as Mysterious Universe, The Lineup, Historic Mysteries, and investigated by journalist Martin Yank. There are many opinions that suggest the events took place, all at the hands of Mary herself. Many of the circumstances in the event seem suspicious and odd. Why didn't anything happen to Mary herself? Why would she just pick up a box and take it into the bus with her instead of getting it to the police immediately? There are also views that the police didn't investigate it to its fullest extent and they jumped to conclusions way too quickly. It seems that there was an injustice for Paul. It was clearly understood that he couldn't have sent the letters while he was in jail, but yet he wasn't exonerated. It was also interesting that all the letters stopped as soon as he was released. If it was the son of Gordon Massey, then why would other people in Circleville be receiving letters If his focus was on making sure an affair wasn't happening and jeopardizing his family's life. How did Paul receive letters in jail, even while in solitary? Why wasn't it looked into or even questioned? Is it really true that the affair began after Ron's death? These are all questions that remain unanswered. This story is still unsolved. I hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you for your support. Please share any of my links and information with any other EI fans that you may possibly know. Make sure you follow me on Instagram at Evil Inside Podcast or Twitter at Evil Inside Pod. The YouTube channel is Evil Inside Podcast, and you can also listen on your platform for podcasts such as Spotify, Podbean or Apple Podcast. Please feel free to leave comments, suggestions, or ideas below. You can also send me a direct message if you prefer. And until next time, EIers, beware of EI everywhere.